0: Hello listeners, we recorded this episode in early March of 2020, a few weeks before the pandemic broke out in the US. We think the subject matter of this episode is still relevant, especially if you're isolating and looking to start a new creative pursuit. We hope you enjoy.
1: Welcome to Yoga Talk, the Yoga International podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Kat Hegberg. I'm the editor of Yoga International.
0: And I am your other host, Kyle Rebar, the senior videographer at Yoga International.
1: And Kyle, what are we talking about today in this episode of Yoga Talk?
0: Well, Kat, today we are talking about writing a book not just about any topic, but specifically about yoga.
1: How to write a book about yoga. And uh, we're, not, we're not tackling this one alone. We're here with our good friend, Jeevana Heyman from Accessible Yoga. Hello. Hi. Thank you so much for joining us again.
2: Yeah, thanks so much for having me.
1: Is this your third time on the podcast, I think? <laughs>
2: I've lost I track. Think maybe.
1: <laughs> yeah, so normally when we do our Yoga Talk podcast, we ask our guests to tell us their yoga story, how they came to yoga, but um, you've already done that. So if you want to wanna learn more about Jeevana and his story, you can check out our archives wherever you get your podcasts. You're on Yoga International and... Here is a story, but um, Jeevana is the founder of Accessible Yoga, the organization, and also the author of a book of the same name Accessible Yoga Poses and Practices for Everybody. And, um, yeah, so we're going to talk about that a little bit. Um, I've recently written a book on yoga with my friend, Diane Bondi as well, who's also, um, she may rival you for most times on the podcast. <laughs> <Jivana>. <laughs> and
2: she's also in my book too, yeah, by the way. She's, she's in, in Jivana's
1: book. book too. Um, the book Diane and I wrote is coming out this December with Shambhala, um, who also published Jivana's book. And our book is called Yoga Where You Are, Customize Your Practice for Your Body and Your Life. And so we thought that it might might be kind of fun since our heads are both in in the book writing world right now. If we kind of delved into that topic a little bit, I know, um, Jivana, I get questions all the time. Like, how do you write a book on yoga? How do you find a publisher? How do you pitch it? What do you do? I'm sure you get questions from people too.
2: Yeah, I do. I do get them all the time, and I really like to talk about it actually because I think that um, there's a lot of mystery around it, and I don't think there needs to be. So. I'm really glad that you have uh, that you've invited me here, and we have this topic because I didn't I didn't know what we're going to talk about for sure. But <laughs> <laughs> I love that topic because I think that is um, something that it's just like. I don't know. It's kept secret. You know, it's like the secret thing.
1: Yeah. It's like the idea of writing a book seems so big. And then to like, it's like, how do I get the process going? How do I find a publisher? How do I figure out how to get all of this on paper? Um, I know we were talking about a little bit before the podcast that with the book that I wrote with Diane, that our, our first thought was, how are we going to write this much? How are we going to fulfill this word count? And then when we turned in our first manuscript, they were like, okay, this is twice as long as it needs to be. Yeah,
2: Yeah, no, writing too much usually is not the problem. Um, But I I love that I question about how do you get started and and all that. And actually, I can tell a little story about that, which is about you.
0: (laughs) Oh, no. Because
2: (laughs) um, the way... Part of the way this book got started actually was by writing articles for you for oh, Yoga cool. International. Oh, cool! Wow, and so, that's awesome. Remember, we did a series. I did a series of articles for Yoga International. You did and how to you make. You edited yeah. them. Yeah, how to make things accessible. Yeah. It was like yeah, how to make forward bends accessible and backward bends and all that. And I ended up using some of that. Um, I can't remember what came first, but I put it in my manual that I used for my teacher training, and then it occurred to me at one point that. You know, that was all written for teachers and I thought, "Oh, I could take the same material and like rewrite it for practitioners rather than just for teachers." Cool, very So cool. you had a big hand in this book actually.
1: Oh, that's so nice to know. And it's a I love your book too. I'm, you know, we have it um right on our bookshelf and I reference it often when I'm thinking of something to teach or the way to, you know, maybe break something down and it's written in a very accessible way too. So it's it's easy to understand. Like the way that you have a variation um, outlined in the book. Like you don't look at it. Sometimes I feel like I look at a yoga book and as someone who spends most of my day job like trying to figure out how to break down sequences and make them understandable and accessible, sometimes I'll look at a book and I just won't understand what the instructions are saying or it won't match up exactly with like what the photo is. And I can see how that could be really confusing. Um, What are some tips or some things maybe you learned about making the writing and the instructions and even the photos accessible to readers?
2: Yeah, so I I think it comes out of, teaching accessible yoga for a long time you know because it's just been my focus so much I'm really focused on how how can a student easily understand what I'm saying as a teacher and translate that into a way of moving their body and that's something that you know teaching different populations over the years I've really had to think about a lot probably more than a lot of people do a lot of yoga teachers have to think so yeah that inspired me to really put thought into the way it's written and the f- photography. And I, I also, um, the photographer is Sarit Rogers, who's amazing. I mean, she mm-hmm. she did a lot of thinking behind the scenes about that too, like how the pictures were, a- a- as well as uh, the main model, DuJour. She was also an amazing teacher and she helped to kind of give ideas about what she could do that might be easier to see in a picture.
1: We had them both on a recent episode together, uh, too. And they collab, uh, I mean, they're like best buddies. They, are, they collaborate best so well together. They yeah. Are. How lucky are you to have them both?
2: Yeah. Well, that was kind of the idea. Like when I thought about it, I was just like, when I thought of the book, immediately I thought of the two of them because I'm like, it's a perfect combination of like photographer and model. So it was just, it was so much fun. And they, it was so fun to hang out with them. Uh, the three of us had a really good time together. It was a lot of photo shoots, actually. Yeah. <laughs> I think it was about four of them, um, you know, which I didn't expect that. And actually, the photography ended up being a huge job. You know, there's like over 300 pictures. And like just organizing it mm-hmm. and keeping track of like what pictures we'd taken. And then especially because the the way the book is laid out is that there's a lot of um, variations of the same poses. So it's like trying to keep track of them and keep them in order was crazy. So actually, Melanie Camellia, I don't know if you know them, they also helped a lot in terms of that. Yeah.
1: When Diane and I were doing the photographs for our book, we had um, Andrea Killam from mm. Yoga International's photographer wow. do our photography, and she's amazing as well. And um, we had about that many photographs and I remember that um, a really good tip that Diane gave me because she had written a book previously was to take the photos first before you write the instructions that way you know that you're writing exactly to what's there and you won't have to rewrite and that's something that's um, a little bit different than we do when we're writing articles because they're so much shorter but it is something that's so important whether you're writing an article that contains a yoga sequence or writing a book that makes sure that the instructions that you write are the pose that's shown. Like, <laughs> don't do it differently. It was it was, yeah. it was
2: a mess. We had to um, – we did about – that because there were so many photo shoots, it was over a long – it was over a period of a year, really. And I had written some at different parts of the book. So sometimes I did have to rewrite the description for the pose based on the pictures, and sometimes I was like, oh, we need this picture because I already wrote this. So it was both – but I think I learned a lot. Yeah. I learned a lot for, and actually I'm working on the, my next book right now. So it'll I'm be so easier. excited
1: about that. Yeah. Can you say anything about that? Maybe we'll talk about that a little bit yeah, more at the end, the, the end of the
2: podcast. I know you asked earlier about like, how do you get started? So maybe we should talk about that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, one other thing I wanted to say, just yeah. this little tip, if you're writing, um, like a put po- and this goes for, if you're writing an article about yoga, if you're writing a book about yoga, anything where you have a sequence or anything, if you have like, um, like a pose or a practice you're describing, it's super important that someone should be able to understand how to do the entire pose or the entire practice, even if the photo wasn't there. So don't leave things out. Say what you need to say. Tell people what to do with their head, if that's important. Tell people what to do with their arms. Make sure that you read it through and that it all makes sense and that if someone didn't know what a downward-facing dog was, someone didn't see a photo of downward-facing dog, that they could do downward-facing dog on your instructions. That's like the number one tip. Yeah, I would that's give to great. someone. That's
2: a great tip. I agree.
1: Um, but yeah, so getting started, how do you get started? What's step one?
2: I think the main thing is you have to have your idea clear. And so before reaching out to someone, I think it's worth spending time really exploring, you know, your concept. And, you know, one thing that I found really helpful was the proposal, the proposal process where, you know, publishers expect you to put together like a formal proposal. And I actually found that, like I kind of dreaded it at first, but I found that to be really useful for me in terms of writing the entire book because oh, me I, had too. To, yeah, yeah. I had to plan it all out. Ahead, yeah, you know, and that I I wouldn't have written that way. I don't think mm-hmm. if they didn't demand that. So these days, usually, what publishers want to see is, um, and you can actually go to most publishers' website and see a kind of a outline of the what the the content for the proposal that they want to yeah. receive, and um, it usually includes um kind of a very short synopsis that's like um less than a page you know just describing the entire thing and then a table of contents that's detailed so you kind of have to have the whole book figured out to have that table of contents written right and then a sample chapter usually just one sample chapter which is so little right just one chapter and interestingly, um, a lot about how are you are going to market the book. And that surprised me. That yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah. Like, what they want to see specifically is what other books are similar to your book. And then you have to say, like, how each one is different.
2: Yes. And actually, what I, I, when I was doing that, I thought they wanted to see that there aren't books that are similar. I did, too. But that's not what they no, want. No. They, they want to see that there, there was, yeah, like, a demand see, for exactly, it. Exactly. They want to see there's a market. And so the best thing to show them is, like, here's a similar book that's done really well. And mine will do really well, too, (laughs) because they want to sell books. And then they
1: do want to know how it differs, I think, too, a little bit. But yeah, Yeah. but yeah, you're right. That was surprising to me. Or
2: like they want to know, like, how are you the right person to write that book? Like, how are you the person who can speak to that topic and why? Yeah. So there's a part of that, too, like really talking about yourself and where you're coming from, I think, is important
1: not the time to be humble.
2: (laughs) No. And also like the marketing. I mean, the the way the publishing industry is right now is that they really rely on authors to sell the books. So you need to have some kind of following or something.
1: Yeah. Also, one thing that can be helpful is if you have a friend who has published a book and has had a proposal that was accepted, if they're willing to let you look at their proposal, then you can use that as kind of like a template or a guide like okay well this is this is how they did it and I can do mine this way too but yeah and I think you know you can just if you're interested in working with a particular publisher you can ask them you can go to their website there's lots of resources out there but that um, definitely that proposal is huge and I had the same thing in the book that I worked on with Diana's like you have an outline you have a template it's like yeah. it becomes less scary oh, because yeah. you know what you're writing and it's like oh, okay i can do this it's really yeah. um it's a little bit scary at first but ultimately i think it ends up being your most helpful ally in your writing oh
2: definitely i mean i spent almost as much time on the proposal as actually writing the book i think it took me like you almost too. a year yeah. yeah and i and i think too. and and it made the writing process much easier because it was more like then i got to kind of fill in So I had the whole structure of the book set up. I had the the chapters outlined, and then it was just writing those specific chapters. The problem is now, like, actually, for my second book, they've been more lenient with me, and I didn't have to write as detailed a proposal, but it's actually, it's a kind of a curse in that (laughs) they're being nice, but it means that I have more, like, less structure. And so now, when I start writing, every time I write, I kind of change things. (laughs) Yeah. You know?
1: Um, one thing that I wanted to ask you about is a question that I've had a lot of people ask me is, do I have a literary agent or did I work with a literary agent? And I was like, what? No. Um, did you, do you get that question? I a lot? do. I, I get that question. Don't, I, yeah. I don't have an agent. I don't no, know,
2: yeah. I'm just, I think, um, I'm just not big
0: enough.
1: Same. Yeah. (laughs)
0: Now, is that something specific to different facets of writing? Like is a fiction writer more likely to need an agent than nonfiction or educational materials?
1: Maybe. I mean, I think that, I think there's one thing to be said in that the yoga world is very niche and very kind of connected in its own way. So it's sort of like if you, if you're a yoga teacher and you're online or you write for books, magazines, articles, you probably have like some common connections and common people that you know. And so you just kind of rely on those a little bit more than you might an agent. Um, I think if someone were writing a book, that was maybe a little bit broader. Like if you wanted to write, um, for instance, a young adult novel, you would probably want to look for an agent maybe. But
2: yeah, I think that's a good answer because yoga, the yoga community is smaller. I think, you know, you could maybe make a connection to um, an editor in, that, in the field of yoga, which could be hard to do just in the world at yeah. large. The thing is, though, I do know someone who's writing a yoga book who's using an agent. Actually, I know two people I doing that. I do too, that. actually. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's... I think I think it's smart. Like, both of them have pretty big audiences and then probably have, you know, in a way they they can shop it around. An agent can, like, take it to all the different publishers and get, like, the best deal f- for them. Yeah. So that's great. That's good, too. I was just, like, excited to just get it published.
1: Me too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I said to my dad um, when I got this, this first book deal, I was like... Um, I was like, guess what, Dad? I'm writing a book, um, and he's like, oh my gosh, that's great, you know. And I was like, yeah, it's gonna be published by a real life publisher and everything. And he's like, oh my gosh, that's great. And he said, when is it coming out? And I said, you know, it's coming out in December 2020. And I told him this maybe like a year or two ago, and he's like why is it taking so long? Uh-huh. Not like, wow, you wrote a book, but what's going to take I so know. long? But people, it's it's a long process. It
0: is. So speaking of your dad's, um, bewilderment at the delay between conceptualizing the book and it eventually getting published, how much of an actual time commitment goes into writing a book? Like you get the idea, you make the pitch, the thing appears on shelves. How long of a time is that? And what could a, burgeoning writer or a first time book writer, uh, what could they look forward to um, with regards to how much time they're going to spend on the book?
1: What's that like for you, Gimini? Well,
0: I think traditionally they give you a year
2: from when they give you a contract, you get a year to write a book usually. And you can adjust that, I think, either way. Like if you're a really fast writer, then I'm sure they'd be happy to get it faster. But, you know, a year is what it took me. And, but that's, from that's the time from having the contract to turning in the manuscript. So that's just one little part of a longer process. Like I said it took me about a year to put the proposal together, then that was a year to actually write the book. And then from when you turn in the manuscript, there's like another year before the book actually comes out. Yeah, and that year is busy marketing too well, and, well, and and, and, the, and the editing.
1: Yeah. I'm in that process right now. I actually um worked on Two books this year. Uh, the other one is uh, the third um, compilation of essays for the Yoga and Body Image Coalition, which I co-edited with Melanie Klein, Katherine Ashworth, and Tony Willis. And that one I just we just um, completed, going through our final um, changes and everything. And I'm currently going through. I have my pencil and my hard copy here, my my other book right now, to going through that. And that's um, it's genuinely a fun process because it's like you already wrote it, and now you. Just get to like refine. I don't know. I really like that. Well, you're an but editor. That's I mean, true. you <laughs> have
2: you have an advantage to on the from the rest of us, you know, because you you have that professional background. I mean, it was. Challenging for me, like I'm not an editor, and and I mean I I guess I'm a writer, but you are, you
1: are, <laughs> okay, I am now.
0: <laughs> Jivana <but it's> like,
1: <laughs> owns the the rights to claim that he is probably the only person who has ever, um, in an article that I've edited, used the word ironically correctly. Oh, so
2: I appreciate that. <laughs> it's very ironic because I don't cool. feel like I'm a real writer. Um, no, I I especially not an editor, and like that part was really hard for me. They had they edited edited the book, but it was also up to me to kind of go through it, you know, As it, once I got the, um, what do you call that, like the
1: yeah. Um, yeah. Like the, I don't even, I can't even think of what it's called right now. Like the A proof. Copy the pr- the proofs the proof proofs. Yeah. The proofs. The yeah, proofs. And
2: like, I, I got the proofs and yeah, I went through and it's like, okay, well I, I could tell if there were misspelled words and things, but like, that's all I could really do.
1: Yeah. And that's the copy editor's job <sighs> yeah. anyway. That's like, yeah.
2: But it was hard that year, like going through it so many times. Cause you'll, you'll get it again once it's actually in bound, you know, and you have one more chance. To look through and then it's just like, and then coffee. it's just reading your same book a lot. Yeah. It's you know? so reading it through many, many times. What
0: do uh, you find as you go
2: through those different, uh, those
0: different passes?
2: Oh, it, it's really, actually, that's where my, um, uh, my critic, you know, really took over. <laughs> and <laughs> then the, um, it was dangerous because I wanted to make change, like big changes. Mm-hmm. And then I really had to stop myself. You know, because it's really too late at that point. They, it takes yeah. a lot of work to change design once they've already designed it. Mm-hmm. Um, we did a little bit of that, but it was really too late to make some of the big changes. And a lot of them were just my own insecurity. Like imposter syndrome takes over, and I'm going mm-hmm. to rewrite yeah. the entire book. Yeah. And that is not good.
0: <laughs> How do you work with imposter syndrome yeah. as you're going through this? Like, that's, what are your tools?
2: I, I mean, that's the biggest challenge for me writing in general, actually. I, I don't know. Maybe you can tell me because I, <laughs> I'm struggling with that right now. Like I'm literally like starting this project of a new one. And it's just so hard to get over myself and like think, oh, I have something important to say. You know what I mean? Like because you, when you're writing, I don't know, for me, at least I tend to read a lot, too. And like I'm reading other amazing books and I'm like, oh, I can't do something as good as that or oh, that's maybe been done already.
1: You know, one thing that I, like, did not do when I was writing this book is um, I know there was there was a certain book that I really wanted to read that came out that was a yoga-related book um, that I knew was going to be very good. And I would not allow myself to read that book until Diane and I had finished and sent in our manuscript because not only did I, like, not want to, like, be um, – inadvertently influenced and, you know, like Mm -hmm. copy something somebody else said, but I also didn't want to be like, Oh, I can never do anything that good. That was smart. That was smart. Yeah. That was, but yeah,
2: I'm probably making a mistake by reading right now, but I feel like I'm in, (laughs) I'm in like a research phase supposedly in my head, like where I'm just like, I love to buy books. It's a problem. Like I have piles of books that I haven't read and, but I just feel like having them around feels good. And then I want to like, I'll read a little bit and it's good in a way because it helps me understand like what else is out there too. Like, you know, and helped me kind of narrow my focus.
1: Yeah, and it is good to see like what's like what people are talking about and what's trending and what's you know what's already been done what's too. Been so done. you don't you don't need to write the same book again. That was so when I ve- when I first started in my early twenties working in um, the print um, magazine world, a friend of mine who had done some internships at a lot of other magazines and had a lot more experience than me. One thing that she always talked about was um, when she would write an article or get an assignment, she would say, I want to make sure that I don't, I don't need to rewrite something that's already been written. I want to do something unique. I want to do something different. And that always stuck with me that if someone's already written this well, I don't need to redo it. I don't need to try to be that person that what I want to put out there is something that's hopefully, hopefully new and hopefully can benefit people. But it's interesting
2: because that's kind of what we mentioned before, like how the publisher wants to know that you're doing something that's been done and yet something new It's yeah. a really weird little like paradox. Yeah. Is that the word?
1: So we have at Yoga International, um, I put together, and I can, listeners, if anybody wants these, I can send them to you. I think they're helpful for everyone. Um, We just don't have them published officially online. But at Yoga International, we have these uh, voice guidelines that we send to our writers, and they're just, like, helpful things to consider. A lot of style guides that I recommend, things to make sure that language is inclusive, that language is up-to-date and current. Um, Like, there's resources like the Disability Language Style Guide, um, the Conscious Style guide that help you to make sure that your your language is um, kind and up-to-date. And also just some general things for making things readable and accessible. And um, in these guidelines, one of the things that I also always like remind people of and ask them to consider is ask yourself when you're writing this, who is the target reader and how will this benefit them? So focus on how the work that you're writing is going to benefit your target reader. And then I find it helpful to ask too constantly when I'm putting content out there or putting an article out there, like just to ask, you know, that question at first, is this for them or is it for me? And if it's for me, maybe it should go in my journal and maybe Uh it doesn't need to go out there, you know, maybe, Uh maybe if it's not really (laughs) going to benefit anyone out there, maybe. Well, I
2: don't know. I might challenge you on that because I've actually, this, my second book is much more personal and I'm feeling like scared of that, but I actually think there's such benefit in sharing my like personal feelings and inner story as a teacher, because I think sometimes there's this, like we put up a wall and we kind of pretend as a teacher, like we're this, like, I don't know what the guru and we know everything. And I think that's so dangerous. Like I really want to be, I want to reveal myself in a, in a safe way and my process. And I think that that's actually going to be the most useful part of this new book? Oh, I would say
1: so. Yeah. Yeah. And I would say that that would, that that would benefit the reader because they can see their own experience and your experience. And it's just hard
2: to know which is for
0: me and which is for them. Like I can't tell right now. I don't know. I think there's a lot to be said about the medium that you're writing for, too, as well. I I would say an article on Yoga International that is a bit more, like, instructive, um, there might not be a whole lot of room for it. But if you're doing a book that is so personal-focused, presumably someone who buys the book is bought into your story already, and then you want them to, you know...
1: Yeah. And having just edited a book of very personal essays that I feel are going to be like very beneficial to people, I would say like representation is huge and visibility is huge. And like a lot of us, you know, um, don't necessarily see our own experiences reflected elsewhere, especially in the yoga world, which, you know, though we're, we're getting better at this still tends to be quite homogenous in a lot of ways. Um, so when you see someone that reminds you of you represented, that's a huge benefit. And when you also, on the other hand, when you're able to connect with an experience that's different from your own and see something from a different perspective that you might not have considered, like, that's huge. The, the biggest lesson that I'm learning again and again and again in my life, I think, is that just because someone's experience is not my experience, that doesn't mean that their experience isn't real and valid. and we I feel like we can't consider that enough
2: yeah and that goes back to the imposter syndrome thing too I think to value our own perspective I mean I think anytime that I teach I have that challenge come up in my mind and my ego is just like who am I to do this why am I in the front of the room and writing and it was very much like teaching to me it felt like the same like sitting at my desk writing is just like standing in front of a room talking You know, it's very similar in terms of like, wait, why am I in this role? Why? why? You know, how did this happen? And how do I take that? First of all, how do I take that responsibility seriously? How do I do it without letting it get to to my head so that I don't actually become the egotistical, you know, yoga teacher Mm -hmm. that I'm afraid I'm becoming? And, um, you know, and also how am I most effective in actually, you know, sharing this incredible thing of yoga this amazing tools that whatever it is it's like a an art i'm gonna call it art that's what i yeah, like to call yoga now we always say absolutely. science of yoga like art of yoga
1: i know i always cringe a little bit when we say science of yoga yeah. because i'm like well it's not really science I but know. it is an art
2: it is an art
1: <laughs> and Also, like to go um, back to what you said, I feel like we yoga teachers kind of are at an advantage because we do consider our language so carefully and we do have to, every time we teach and break down a pose, consider, is this going to make sense and is this going to benefit my um, my student, and it's the same thing that you can ask for your reader to make your language really clear. And um, that's something I really wanted to talk about too with you is accessible language. Um, I've been really fascinated lately in delving into um the philosophy, I guess you would call it, of plain language, um, which is stating things like specifically, intentionally, consciously saying things in a way that's less academic, um, less maybe poetic, and more focusing your intent on making sure what you say is understandable Um, and to do this for the benefit of um, making – your what you have to say the information that you have to get out there available to more people in particular folks who might have learning disabilities or folks who might have um maybe not had as much opportunity for education as others um did you consider any of that or have you looked into any of that one when-
2: you know I don't really have back have like training in writing so for me it just is coming out of my teaching but in my teaching in general, I think about that a lot. I mean, with accessible yoga, I mean, that's a huge part of what we're doing is trying to make the teachings of yoga accessible to people who feel like it's out of reach for them for whatever reason. And part of that is what you describe that sometimes the language that's used to teach yoga is inaccessible. And especially like I'm, I'm passionate about yoga philosophy and the more subtle aspects of the yoga um, teachings that are often, you know, presented in a way that are just Completely not understandable. I mean, it's almost on purpose. I think sometimes, like the language that's used, is just so either, like you said, like flowery or complex, or the words are too big, and that just makes no sense to me either. And and I feel like the concepts are so amazing and important and beautiful, and and have changed my life. So I'm really like dedicated to that idea of how do we make these concepts more. accessible, you know, and, and understandable. And that has a lot to do with words, actually, and the way that we describe things, you know.
1: Yeah. One thing, a couple of tools that have been really helpful to keep in mind, both um, with my own writing and when kind of editing others and working with other people's, um, helping them with their writing, is use the active voice unless you have a reason not to. Um, And if you're not sure the difference between active and passive voice, um, there's a lot of really great resources online that can show probably better examples than the one that I'll try to give you here. But it's interesting how much we in the yoga world love the passive voice, um, which an example of that might be something like um, an effect will be felt in the hamstrings instead of You might feel a stretch in your hamstrings or um, basically just um, emphasizing the, uh, not emphasizing the doer when you use the passive voice. So instead of saying, I said hello to Kyle, Kyle was greeted. Hello would be the passive voice. And I think sometimes we use the passive voice a lot because we want to de-emphasize ourselves and we want to, we want to maybe be or at least come across as humble. Um, and also, I think there's this idea that it sounds kind of like academic and lofty and smart. And maybe that's me just sort of like putting my own feelings on it. But I would say, you know, own own what you're doing. Yeah. Like say I did this. I think this. It's amazing. I'm saying this. It's amazing
2: to have you hear you say that because like I really went through that process in the book and I didn't know what it was called. But like I really struggled with the 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 way I was starting to write the book. I was like, this is garbage like I was like I'm sounding like some stupid lecture you know or like if you look at, yeah most yoga books are written in that way and it's just or or in the kind of a um, third person like yeah. we you know like we do this and then we should do this and it just feels very like
1: interesting one of the very first yoga teacher trainings that I did um and I don't I won't like call out this organization, but it's a, it's a particular, um, and they might not teach this way anymore, but it's a particular organization. I did my very first teacher trainings with them and they told you on purpose to always use we language because it was more inclusive. And so I taught that way for a long time. And then I studied, um, with another school, um, which I also won't name, but um, <laughs> then that school said the opposite. They said, no, tell people to bend your knee, step your right foot forward because you're talking to them. You're giving an instruction. Um, and so that's what, that's what I did. And that was really helpful. And I know there are reasons sometimes not to do that, where if you're teaching, especially like in a trauma-sensitive or a trauma-informed environment, you may want to de-emphasize that a little bit and make your language more invitational. But I think you should, you know, just like keep coming back to your reasons for using a particular type of language. Um, another thing that's helpful to consider is, you know, don't worry about sounding smart. Just make what you're saying really clear. Speak to your audience.
0: I So when I first started working for Yoga International fresh out of college, I was an English minor, among other things. The amount of passive voice that I was assaulted with um, working and taking classes at a yoga retreat center... It irked me to such an extreme degree.
1: I think you and I have like a secret mission to just eliminate...
0: Obliterate <laughs> 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 the <laughs> passive voice. The passive
1: voice. And there are times when you want to use the passive voice, which mm-hmm. is if you really don't want to emphasize who's doing the thing and you want to emphasize the thing. Um, but just, I would say, if you're using the passive voice, I would say don't use the passive voice unless you have a reason to use it.
2: Yeah. And also I think... And for me, it goes back to again, like being in the seat of the teacher. And like, I felt like I needed to be more, I had to take ownership over my voice in the book and just like not, not to like put it aside and just like be, be in that role to just speak what I want to say and just say it directly and clearly and use first person language. Like that's what I came to in the end. I was just like, yeah. tell my story, tell what I think from me. Right? Yeah.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I, I don't have any research I can cite right now. I will I've been trying to find this because, but I've heard anecdotally and probably more than anecdotally, I think there is this research out there. Um, but again, I don't want to say that conclusively without having actually seen it, but that um, when you use the passive voice, that it is, Um, has been shown to be more challenging for people who have certain learning disabilities and who have a certain reading level to understand. And so my feeling is, why would I want to put up an unneeded barrier to yoga for those people? Like, it just doesn't make sense.
2: Yeah. And actually, you know, part of it, I I wonder if And this is what happens to me when I, when I read something I've written and it seems complicated, I think, you know what? I wasn't clear with myself about what I wanted to say. Mm -hmm. You know, I need to go back and really think about what is the point here? (laughs) Because sometimes when you're writing, you can get like lost, like you go on a tangent and I I think, wait, that's not really where I was headed in the first place. So it's like, but I, but I might not want to edit so much. And I think editing is the key actually is being willing to like throw a lot away. That's really, that's really hard.
1: Yeah. And that's why it's so good to work with an editor. Uh-huh. Even if you, if you self-publish, I would recommend yeah. even like, I know a lot of people are self-publishing these days and I had a question for you about that too. Um, and so even if you decide to self-publish, which I've actually like worked, um, just as a freelance editor with a lot of people who decided to self-publish or helped a lot of people like with their manuscripts before they submitted to a publisher. And I can't emphasize enough, um, how helpful it is to have an editor and please know the difference between um like a top editor or a substantive editor a uh, content editor versus a copy editor yes, or a proofreader. let's let's talk about that cat okay. cuz th-
0: this I think has has stirred up a couple of debates, <laughs> arguments, heated <laughs> discussions when uh <laughs> when I when I have asked cat cat can you copy edit this this informative slide in the video. I'm not copy editing. So Do you wh-
1: really want a copy editor? Yeah. So like what
0: what what is like an actual okay. copy editor? Quick definition. So
1: And different people, there's different definitions depending on who you ask and depending on who you work with. But in general, so if you want someone to look over the content of, like if you have like your rough draft and you want someone to look over like the content of it and make suggestions and tell you what works, tell you what doesn't, help you figure out kind of like the structure of everything, um, then you don't want a copy editor. Then you want someone who is going to do You might ask for someone who can help you with a content edit or a substantive edit, um, a, a sub edit, you could so, say.
0: Oh, that's what that means. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I call it a, sub- I don't know how popular that term is anymore. When I first started in the editorial world, we always used sub edit, but I, It's honestly a word that I kind of think that only I like almost use anymore. (laughs) And um, I'm sure there are other people out there too. But when I I did an an editing program uh, with the University of San Diego a while back, it was not a term that came up. I think uh, content edit was more what we used in that. Um, And then a copy edit is more like if you want help with... Grammar and style, and someone to make sure that you know the punctuation is there, and and that and there's a difference between a light copy edit versus a medium copy edit versus a heavy copy edit. So a heavy copy edit might include a lot of fact checking and might include they might reword a lot more for you. A light one must might just be like, hey, this doesn't make sense, reword it, or it might be you know just a little bit more focused on the grammar and the syntax and um, reworking for that, but. You don't really want a copy editor until you feel like what you've written is done. Um, because I've had, you know, like someone will give you something and they'll say, Can you copy edit this? And then you'll think, Well, yes, but it probably should have had another edit before that, you know, but but you don't, you don't quite know how you're going to say that. Um, so I would say before you ask someone to copy edit something, you want to feel like it's done. And then proofing is like the very last thing. Proofing is like make sure there's no typos. So if you ask someone to proof your manuscript or proof your book, um, know that you're literally saying just make sure this doesn't have any typos um, for the most part. And again, a lot of it depends on who you ask. Not everybody. I mean, do you even, you know, we can't even agree on how to spell the word copy editor it's is it one word or two <laughs> words like no one really knows I know, right? so keep that in mind um and also like you know be willing to pay your editor especially if they're a freelancer um look into what the going rate is and you know don't don't offer somebody 25 bucks and a free copy of your book to and to like Redo the whole thing in two days, <laughs> like yeah. it's it's not realistic. You're going to have to budget for that. Um, and if you decide to self-publish, I would say that's all the more important because if you're working with a publisher, then they will have very skilled copy editors and they will have very skilled acquisitions editors already um, who are there to help you through the process. But if you're self-publishing, then I would say take the initiative. You know, find an editor to work with. You can find their tons of freelancers online. Um, as I said, uh, about two years ago, I did a copy editing program through the university of San Diego's extension school. Um, just for my own, even though I'm not really a copy editor, I just wanted to have like some extra extended knowledge in that area. Um, and there were a lot of people there who worked as copy editors and we're doing that as continuing ed and, um, they really like, you know, that's how they make their living is as freelancers. So support freelancers.
2: That's great advice.
1: Yeah. And, um, Speaking of that, I wanted to to talk to you a little bit about self-publishing versus working with a publisher. Um, did you consider self-publishing at all? And what made you decide you wanted to go with um, an outside publisher versus publishing yourself?
2: Yeah, I thought about it a little bit. Um, I think a lot of what you just said was why, Is personally, I, I wanted to have it done well. And I guess I just didn't have the resources or know like who to go and hire myself to help with those things. Like I wanted help on all those levels. You know, I wanted, I wanted like that. What did you call it? The sub? Yeah. Like uh, the, the sub, content the editor. Content editor. I really needed that. I editor. really wanted to talk through the content and I really wanted a copy editor and I wanted a proofreader and all that. And that was part of what that publisher offered. Also, I was really focused on distribution.
1: Yeah. The, to have yeah. help with marketing and distribution is, yeah. is really huge
2: because it was accessible yoga like my goal was to reach a large audience and I like I'm trying to reach people outside of the yoga world and that I didn't feel like I could do that myself because all my connections are within yoga really yeah. and I we have an amazing network in accessible yoga but I I was thinking like this is a great book for people who don't think they can do yoga and so how do I get to them you know
1: yeah i mean i know like i've said before i think my mom is like your biggest fan oh, and i wouldn't awesome. necessarily like give my mom a copy of you know like the yoga sutras, but I would give my mom a copy of your book. I think I have. (laughs) (laughs) That's sweet. Thanks mom. (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah, Kyle, before I want to ask, uh, a little bit more about his upcoming book, but before I do, do you have any more?
0: Yes, I do actually. Uh, so this is a question for the table. We discussed a little bit at the beginning of the podcast about, um, Perfectionism. And this is something, Kat, that you and I talk about a good deal. Uh, and that is sometimes perfect being the enemy of the good. And when you are writing your book and later proofing, reviewing, going over your book, um, how do you manage perfectionist tendencies? Uh, Jeevna, you mentioned, I want to scrap the whole thing, write it better, throw it in the garbage. But yet you have. You have a contract, you have a time commitment, and you, you have to get it done. How do you be okay with doing as good of a job as you can and getting it? How do you accomplish something that's realistic but is also good or good enough?
1: Well, that's why I like working with a co-author all uh-huh. the time. That's why I like working with other people. Because uh-huh. um, I constantly am like, like, I'll write something and I'll think, this is garbage, this is garbage. And then my my writing partner will look at it. Or if I'm writing an article for Yoga International, um, I, I never, of course, edit my own articles. I always give my articles to other editors. And I always give it to my dear friend and um, co-editor on the, the book, um, Embodied Resilience, which is the the book that I edited with the Yoga and Body Image Coalition, uh, Catherine Ashworth. I always give it to her first. And I always say, Catherine, is this garbage? Like, is this good or should I start? Like most of the time I'm like, this is garbage, right? And she's, and she, I know she'll be honest with me. And she's never said it's garbage, but she's always said, you know, maybe you could change this part or this part. But I always have a friend to convince me that it does not need to be thrown in the garbage. And it's always someone who I trust will tell me if it does.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's such a good question, actually. I um, my background is actually in painting. You know, I, I was an artist. Know that? Yeah, wow. I mean that's what I studied throughout through college, and and then I stopped painting when I got really into yoga because it felt like it was fulfilling a similar kind of creative outlet for me. And and to me, writing does that now too. Like writing is very much a creative outlet. And the thing about and with painting is like the same problem. It's like, when do you stop? Like, when is a painting finished? Because it's really easy to overpaint something. And it's really hard, especially with something like watercolor. Like, doing watercolor is the best way to learn about this, you know, of, like, where to stop. Because, like, with watercolor, like, you need that empty space. And if you just keep going, you're going to ruin it. So that really helped me at least have that in my mind Mm -hmm. to, like, really understand the value of stopping Mm -hmm. when it isn't perfect, but it's, like, okay like it's okay there's something there i need to stop or like step away and so that's what i try to do like at this point what i try to do is just i don't usually have someone look at it right away but at least i'll walk away from something and like not read it for a week or two like i need some time because then when i go back i often forget that i even wrote it and i'm like wait does that make any sense now and then i can go back in and rewrite things and that's what i that's what always happens i end up rewriting whole things But in a way I think that's good because I feel like it's like, that's what a draft is for. So it's like, I do a draft, I step away, then I come back to it and I'm like, well, does this really, is it what I wanted to say? Is it meaningful? Is it effective? Is it clear and accessible? So I start asking myself those questions and I rewrite.
1: There are two very cliche things that come to mind that I often find helpful. one is, I think it's the Hemingway quote to write drunk and edit sober. <laughs> and I'm not advocating that we get uh-huh. crunk and then edit the next day, but it's more just like, don't go, like when you're just writing out your first draft, yeah. like don't edit it, don't second guess, just do it yeah. and then put it aside, then go back and then yeah. edit. Um, as my friend Diane would say, slash and burn, uh-huh, you know, yeah, do that. Yeah. And um, my, my co-writer Diane, my dear, dear best friend Diane. Oh. <laughs> um, yeah, so that's that's one thing that comes to mind. And the other is um, from The Simpsons. I don't know if we have any other big Simpsons fans in the, the Yoga Talk universe. I'm sure there's at least one or two of you. Um, and it is the Krusty brand seal of approval, which we have um, our friend Jonathan, who works with us at Yoga International. He was a model in my Yoga for Strength and Endurance series, so some of you might have seen him out there. Um, He gave me a Krusty brand, Seal of Approval, which I have in my home and look at often. And it says, it's not just good. It's good enough. And <laughs> that is that is something I have to remind myself uh-huh. of constantly when I get in perfection mode.
0: Yeah. I can relate to your struggles with painting and yeah. w- knowing when to walk away from something. I'm at a point now with a very low stakes uh, local band project with my friends back home that... That, that 10 years later from when we started working on the thing, like they, the group is now finally okay with, okay, this is done mm-hmm. ten, 10 years, years later. later. Wow. And, and I think so much of that could have been accomplished with just knowing, Hey, this is, this is good enough.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Again, because a lot of that is ego too. And that, I, th- I think the other th- part that plays into this for me is is that it's a yoga practice you know yeah
1: and yoga is a practice yeah. not a perfect
2: right i'm but all also, about
1: the cliches here today <laughs> i know
2: but i would say like for me yoga practice is about really trying to um rein my ego in but mm-hmm. not destroy it like i feel like there's this like balance in yoga if you if you look at sometimes the teachings are taught like yoga is Quieting the mind, but sometimes it sounds like it's like destroying the mind, you know, like get yeah. it to be stop, and that that's not it to me. It's like actually, yoga is about um, becoming more clear and seeing seeing more clearly. Have what is it called? Uh, discriminative discernment yeah. is one of the phrases that I use for viveka. Like that. Is that Sanskrit word? You know, like if you really look at the Yoga Sutras, that that's actually one of the main goals that we're working on is you know clear vision, and that is what. I try to use when I'm doing this, so I don't, I try not to get lost in my.
1: And some, and I think it's so tricky with the terminology too, because we can tend to like take the the yogic concepts of, um, let's say, asmita, and confuse it with like the Western psychological definition of ego, which is something different. So, like you know, if you if you are like clearly thinking of one thing or another thing, then no, we don't want to destroy our ego because we need that kind of to uh-huh. <laughs> move around in the world yeah. and be a self-actualized human being. But right. are we using the yogic term where the western term <laughs> yeah, and i know you've corrected me on that actually it's it's words are fun yeah, yeah but yeah.
2: i i like i like to focus on that idea of clear vision personally because i think it it's more of a realistic goal like than some of the other yogic goals of like samadhi or whatever and i think that clear vision is something that f- helps me do all the things that i do in my life including writing you know just try to see it clearly rather than get stuck in it in an emotional way yeah
1: well, before we, we wrap things up today, um, can you tell us a little bit about your latest uh, project yeah. that you're working on?
2: Yeah. I mean, I'm basically, I finished accessible yoga and I was
1: the book, not the the book.
2: <laughs> and I was struck by, um, one little phrase that I wrote kept like ringing in my ears kind of, and I don't know how even if I can say it exactly, but it was, um, the idea that, like light through a prism, accessible yoga is making yoga available to everyone. And I had that vision in my mind of light through a prism. And I started to have this, like, it was like a theme in my practice. I just kept thinking about it all the time. And I realized that what I, what I was trying to get at was that the way I'd been trained in yoga was to quiet the mind, like I said a minute ago. And that there was always stillness associated with that, this idea of getting quiet and still and this kind of focus. But I realized that for me, I haven't experienced it that way at all. I've experienced the opposite, which is that to me yoga makes me feel more expansive and open and welcoming. And I've just shifted the way I think about the teachings so much through that kind of self-acceptance of rather than trying to fit myself in a box I'm trying to allow myself to be more open and accepting of every part of myself and other people. And I mean, that, that is based also on the fact that I'm a gay man and like, I feel like I've always felt slightly outside of things in my life and like observing, learning to accept the differences has been a theme in my life. And I feel like yoga has helped me do it. And I'm, I guess what I'm trying to say is I'm, I'm trying to find a way into the teachings right now. That can help people. I know that sounded kind of all like maybe out there, no, but no, that's it's, more practical yeah. to like focus on this idea of expansion and um, and dif- accepting differences in a really practical, down to earth yoga way.
1: That's so cool.
2: Does that make sense? Yeah, I'm very <laughs> interested.
1: Yeah, I w- I would read that book.
2: <laughs> I hope so. Well, I'll sell two books. So I guess what I'm focusing on is. Um, you know, my personal journey as a gay man and also how that's shifted my understanding of the yoga teachings.
1: That's so freaking cool. I can't wait to read that book.
2: Oh, thank you. Awesome. I appreciate that. I'm feeling a little insecure about it, to be honest, because I've been that, like, that's, you know, the creative process is so... Mm-hmm. It's a very sensitive place, you know? I can't... It's like... Um, like you, I, I wouldn't know... I, you said drunk before, but <laughs> it's to me it feels more like... Um, like a fetus, like it's gestational, and i I think there's a you have to protect that side mm-hmm. and what's another way to say that?
1: right as a fetus, edit as a grown up <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly, but you know there's another word there's probably another way to say that, but um you know what I mean it's like protect the the
0: word that comes to mind for me, and I'm looking at this is yeah kind of some like music stuff I've written that has Mm -hmm. been very personal. Um, There's a good deal of vulnerability to it. And there's a lot of vulnerability that comes to you being honest to your experience. Mm -hmm. And that sense of vulnerability is kind of fragile. You don't always get to be vulnerable. And depending on how that is received, you can either become very comfortable with it or that can shatter your sense of, vulnerability and willingness to be vulnerable. Yeah.
2: And I actually think that yoga teachers we're kind of in a funny situation, especially these days, because I I feel like we often tell people how to live their lives and give a lot of like really personal, like spiritual information (laughs) to people that's so, so intimate. And yet we don't often share ourselves. Like we do it in this really kind of hands-off way I don't know that's it's something I'm really thinking about these days like that feels wrong to me
1: yeah you know yeah it's interesting because there's like it seems like there's always this sort of like tension between you know you want to have professional boundaries and scope of practice but also like you don't want to like elevate yourself as more than human and or or elevate yourself above your students in any way like you're just all there kind of figuring out stuff together which honestly it's interesting because um, when I first started teaching I would always stay on my mat and do the practice because I was like you know kind of insecure and I didn't want to I, I didn't want to walk around the room because I was afraid I'd get mixed up and I wouldn't remember my sequence and as I got to be a more experienced teacher then I stopped doing that and I started walking around the room and teaching more and the trainings that I took and the schools that I studied in they said never stay on your mat never practice with the students always walk around always and then. There was a shift later on, and now when I teach, a lot of the times I practice with people. And it's kind of interesting that I found that I've come back to that more and more because it's not like it's my practice or it's not like I'm not paying attention to people or anything like that, but it's more like I'm less concerned about fixing people and making sure everybody's doing it right and more about just kind of like cultivating an experience and a place for people to practice together and figure things out together. So it's been kind of interesting to like see that shift right so in a way you're sharing
2: your practice together rather than putting yourself up above them i think that's essential actually as a yoga teacher these days is that we shift that dynamic the power dynamic
0: it is very nice kat when you are teaching an intense boot camp class and we the students can (laughs) see you suffering through this with the rest of us (laughs)
1: it is is great equalizer i always i I always like Uh And dog interrupting doggo okay mate I have um I have a policy that I think it was um Like uh, I teach a lot of these days um, like yoga fusion classes where I incorporate um, like high intensity interval training and some Pilates inspired things into my yoga classes. And I know a lot of people have a lot of opinions about that. And that's okay. Not every class is for every person. But um, if I'm doing something, my whole thing is simple but not easy. Like do things that a lot of people can do where they feel challenged, but where you don't have to put your leg behind your head. I like arm balances as much as the next person, but not everybody's interested in arm balances some people just want to sweat and be in their bodies and move and then do a little yoga with that too. So I love teaching that way. And um, I have a rule though that if like we're doing jump squats, we're doing burpees, we're doing anything that's just like not most people's favorites, then I'm going to do them with you because you'll hate me if I don't. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's great. Um, yeah. That's a so good before
1: we close, uh, Jeevana, where can people find you online and what would you like to plug today?
2: Actually, I have a, my own new website that's jeevanahaman.com. That was a hard one for me to do, but yeah, there you go. And um, that has like all my upcoming teaching on there and, and the book is on there too. But also AccessibleYoga.org is where the nonprofit, uh, that's a nonprofit website. And then for trainings, we have AccessibleYogaTraining.com.
1: Cannot recommend enough, seriously.
2: (laughs) Thank you. And And,
1: classes, online classes. And classes classes on Mm -hmm. Yoga
2: International. That's been really nice to have some classes there. That's accessible these days, right? If people don't have other ways to practice, they can go online.
0: So here are some updates to what Jeevan has been working on since we recorded this podcast. The Accessible Yoga Conference will be online from October 16th to October 18th, 2020. Information about the conference will be available at AccessibleYoga.org. Jivana is teaching the Accessible Yoga Training online this week, uh, June 15th to June 19th, so that's probably wrapping up by the time you're listening to this, but he'll be offering it again in the fall. You can find out more information about that training at AccessibleYogaTraining.com. You can find Yoga International at YogaInternational.com, the Yoga International app on iOS and Android, as well as Instagram and Facebook. You can send any questions for me or Kat or our guest, or even topic suggestions for the show to Yogatalk at YogaInternational.com. See you next time!